from verses 15 through to 35, but I want to say something in my first point in the sermon about the first 14 verses, so let me set that in context for you. Um, We're quite far on into Jesus' three and a quarter years public ministry, and he's taken a group of people out of uh, a regular band of people of several thousand, uh, a more committed group of about 500 people. Uh, He has chosen 12 to be with him, close to him, to become apostles, that they might become the leaders of the church. And he's teaching them not just theology and doctrine, he's teaching them how to apply God's word in practical application. And uh, within this group of 12 unlikely candidates to become the leaders of the early church, there is constant division, bickering, a bit of backstabbing and a lot of competition about who is the greatest. And on one occasion they're arguing with themselves about who the greatest of them is, and Jesus takes a little child and places the child in the midst of them and teaches from the, 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 the position of humility that unless they become like little children, then the kingdom of God doesn't actually belong to them. And so the teaching is in the context of, of the, the kingdom of God as we experience it, uh, and that's where I want to come with tonight's sermon in experiencing forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is uh, a number one priority in, in entering the kingdom of God. But also we need to learn to uh, apply forgiveness to other people as an exercise of experience from us to them as we're part of the kingdom. The second illustration that Jesus gives is in the parable of the lost sheep in verses 10 following. Uh, And again, you would think that if the most of the sheep, the 99 out of the 100, are there enclosed in the safe place, Jesus is going to be happy with that. But in the illustration he says that knowing the 99 is secure... The shepherd goes out and seeks the one who is lost. And I believe that the two points he makes in the illustration of the child and the illustration of the lost sheep is that that which seems insignificant to society and certainly insignificant to proud followers of God has a big priority in the heart of the Savior to reach out and to find them and to recognize them and to nurture them and to love them. And so let's look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, a little comment on that, you'll see in the footnote, some manuscripts don't have the two words against you. So if your brother sins, go to him and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king 
who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. And again, I just want to comment on that. You know, that is just the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you and I, who owe such an indebtedness, such an amount has been accrued against us by the cost of our sinning, that all we can do is to come and plead mercy before the righteous king, the one to whom every man must give an account. It's a picture of the gospel of God having mercy on those that cannot ever pay back at whatever cost or however much time they're given, cannot pay back to God the penalty that their sin affords. And so God has mercy on us through Jesus Christ. And for those who are willing to accept that gift, cancels the debt once and for all and lets us go free. But for the context of what I'm speaking about tonight, oh, that the story ended there. Let's read on. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. This is the word of God. Um, The subject tonight is experiencing forgiveness uh, completely. The sermon shouldn't last too long on three accounts. My wife has told me not to preach long. Uh, Several people in the congregation, secondly, have come to me and said, it's so warm in here, Uh, forgive us if we fall asleep early on in your sermon. So therefore, I probably shouldn't preach too long. And thirdly, I have a sore throat. Uh, Actually, I was talking to a friend of mine from a charismatic church yesterday. He said, you just need to be more positive about it. And I said, well, I'm positive I've got a sore throat then. Okay. My text is Matthew 18 and verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. These are hard words for us to listen to. And again, I'm so glad that it was Jesus who said them and not any of us. The introduction to what I'm going to say is under the title, United We Stand. United We Stand, someone said, divided God will wait upon another generation. I don't know about you, I'm fired up with zeal for the Lord for this generation. I want to be among the generation of God's people again in Scotland who see revival come to the heart of the nation. Does that stir you? Say amen if it stirs you. You want to be part of that generation. God will not bless his divided church. 
God will not bless his fragmented community. The psalmist says there is a place of commanded blessing that where brothers dwell together in unity, there God commands the blessing, even peace forevermore. Why do some of God's children have such a difficult time getting along with each other? I was given a poem some years ago by an elderly lady who's now in glory. And the poem reads thus, To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know. Well, that's another story. Do you know, but with so much dissension, so much division among professing Christians, I believe that we need to come back to hear what Jesus is teaching in the heart of Matthew 18. Jesus rebuked his disciples for their pride and their desire for worldly greatness. And he taught them three essentials for unity and harmony among God's people. And I want to look at these three essentials for unity and harmony among God's people. First of all, humility. And I'll briefly touch on that since we didn't read the whole of the scripture in verses 1 through 14. For honesty in verses 15 through 20. And then we'll come to the core subject of my sermon tonight, which is forgiveness in 21 through 35. My brother-in-law, who's also a preacher, uh, was talking about unity some years ago in the church. And he says, I want to give you a very uh, visual illustration. He didn't actually have two candidates to do this with. But he says, with your imagination, please imagine that I have two cats here. Who's he? Cats. C-A-T-S. Two cats here. Uh, And I'm going to tie them together by the tail. So they're united. And now imagine I'm hanging them over the clothesline. They don't have much fellowship. And sometimes the battle goes on among Christians. We get tied together in a church, in a group, um, in some sort of belief system. And yet we lack that intimacy of fellowship that ought to be ours as believers. So the first thing that you and I need... Uh, to learn, to receive, to have God mold within us is a spirit of humility. Someone has accurately defined humility as that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. You know, no one can actually say, I think it was Selwyn Hughes, uh, the late Selwyn Hughes was preaching one time on the subject of humility and a lady at the church door afterwards came up and said, Brother, I want to thank you so much for that sermon. I believe that that's one of my most endearing gifts. And yet we laugh at her, but how often do we think we're actually a humble person when maybe we're not? In verse 1, we see the need for humility. Which one of us is the greatest? Was something that was often repeated for discussion among the disciples. And Jesus points to the fact that the selfishness and the disunity of God's people is still the scandal that it is to the Christian faith. And you know, the thing that's at the back of causing a lack of humility is is simply pride. Human pride is such an awful thing. Hands up those who... No, I won't. (laughs) Pride is such an amazing, powerful thing that keeps us from being that humble people and learning from God. When my son was learning to swim, we had him in the baths one, in the swimming baths one day, and he had his water wings on and he's sliding down the chute. He's only a little kid of two or three years old, and he's sliding down the chute and into the water and paddling around for a little while, and then he'd go back up the chute and he'd slide down again. Uh, and he gets to the bottom of the chute, and before he gets into the deep water, I see him standing there and he rips the water wings off. 
And I went, what are you doing? And he says, I can do it. Okay, well, go ahead. So he stepped off the end of the board and went straight under the water and gurgled for a little while. I thought, well, you know, that'll teach him. So I kind of picked him up and I was going to put the water rings back on him and with that defiance that can only come from a human being or a son of mine, he said, I can do it. Okay, son, there's the chute, back up to the top end of the chute, slide down, gurgle, 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 gurgle. Let him gurgle a little while longer again this time. Picked him back up. He had to learn how to swim and sometimes we're like that with God. God, I can do it. And we let our pride get in the way of us becoming that humble people. So Jesus uses in verses 2 to 6 and 10 through 14 this example of humility. The disciples wait breathlessly for Jesus to name the greatest man among them. Is it Peter? Is it James? Uh, and then he bypassed them completely. Calls a little child into their midst. And the child was the greatest example of true greatness. True humility as you find in children, means knowing yourself. The child who is precocious, a bit of a show-off, don't hold that back in them. I mean, you're going to have to discipline them and correct them, and there is uh, that which is the right thing to do in certain society and places. But don't stifle that which is natural to the child's ability of knowing themselves, accepting themselves, and being yourself, your best self, to the glory of God. You know, I look back in my life and think of how many years, how much time has been stifled and hindered by what other people said about me or thought about me, or what I thought they, they thought about me. It's about being yourself in the presence of God. That's where humility begins. And it means avoiding two extremes. It means think, avoiding the stream of thinking less than yourself, as you ought to, as Moses did when God called him just been reading about that in my own quiet time recently, about how God calls Moses to go into Egypt to rescue his people. And Moses says, who am I? I can't speak. Uh, and he wasn't losing his voice with a sore throat. He just said, I, I just can't do this. And so God, in his anger, actually says, well, take your brother along as well. But he wanted Moses to be that man who would simply obey him and accept himself for who he was. But it also means avoiding the extreme of thinking more of yourself than you ought to. A truly humble person neither denies the gifts God has given them, but he or she also uses them to the glory of God. So what's the cost of that humility? Well, if you look there in Matthew 18, verses 9, sorry, 7 through 9, you'll notice that a truly humble person helps build others up. That whatever great giftedness, spiritually or practically or otherwise, that they have, They use their gifts not to tear down others, but to build them up. That's the truly humble person. Humility begins with self-examination, and then it continues with self-denial. And so we come to the second point of my sermon tonight, for honesty. You know, we don't always practice humility, but there are times when deliberately or unconsciously, We offend others and hurt them. Even the Old Testament law recognizes in Numbers 15 and verses 22 the sins of ignorance. And David prayed in Psalm 19 and verse 12 to be delivered from the secret sins. Meaning faults that are even hidden from my own eyes. 
I've been married to Jeanette now for 27 years over. Um, there's not a whole lot of my faults that I've yet to discover, I don't think. She's pointed out most of them. Uh, but then that's what God gives us partners for, sure. What should we do when another Christian has sinned against us or has caused us to stumble? Well, the Lord here in verses 15 through 20 gives several illustrations. First of all, he says, keep the matter private. When someone sins against you, I actually think that the scripture reads when someone sins. I think that in the church, maybe in the West, maybe it's just where we're at in our day and generation. I don't know. I don't think we're terribly good at approaching one another and saying, brother, sister, I think the way that you're living, I think the way you talk, I think the company you keep, I think the way that you dress, etc., etc., is actually uh, hindering the witness of Jesus. But of course, we've got to do that in the right spirit, in the right grace. And that's why Jesus prefaces what he's about to say here in terms of disciplining one another in the context of being humble. Proud person can't discipline properly another Christian. So he says... If there is matters of sin that needs to be addressed, then keep the matter private. If you're the person who has seen this, then go to the person and speak to him. It's possible he doesn't even realize that he's done it. That's why David prays, forgive me for the secret sins. Oh, for the wonder and blessing of brothers and sisters in the church who can graciously come alongside us and say, Rodney, I I think the way you said that was just inappropriate. And gently steer a Christian, a believer, back to that place of being more Christ-like in the way we conduct ourselves. Or even if the person does it deliberately, your own attitude of submission and love will help that person to repent and to apologize. Above all else, go to him or her with the idea of winning your brother or sister, not with winning an argument. You know, it's well said that it's possible to win an argument and to lose your brother. We need to learn and to discern when it's right to say nothing for fear of how our words may be misinterpreted or reinterpreted in a false way. If that doesn't work, then secondly, Jesus says, ask help from others. If the offender refuses to make things right, then and then and only then may we feel free to share the burden with one or two other dependable believers. But we should share the facts with them. This is also practical. We should share the facts. Not how we interpret them, but how we see them and ask others for their prayerful counsel. It may be that we're wrong in actually thinking that someone else is wrong. And we may share it with somebody who's dependable, more mature, a a, a home fellowship leader or someone who's a mentor in our Christian life, an elder or a pastor or, or someone. And they will say, well, actually, you know, I don't think it's such a big deal. And maybe all you need to do is just to let it slide before it gets out of hand. But you know, the problem is that when sin is not dealt with honestly, either as an individual or as a collective group of people in the church, when it's not dealt with honestly, it spreads. And Jesus and Paul are at pains to tell us that it is compared to leaven. Uh, Like the yeast in the dough, it spreads. And, And the smallest amount of yeast Uh, can begin to affect the whole batch of dough. That's what sin does. And so we must be careful not to become those who perpetuate or to spread uh, the sin. 
What was a matter before just between two people grows to involve more. And uh, that can be a difficulty for us. It was difficult enough for us to be approached by one person, but to have other people come to us and, and draw us up on our shortcomings, boy, that's a real great against the human pride nature thing. Uh, I, I know that when Richard or Colin or Peter preached on this pulpit, they quote from Karl Barth and, and uh, Bonhoeffer and, and other learned people. I'm going to quote from Adrian Plass's son, Gerald, tonight, who when his father was struggling with the issues of other people pointing out his deficiencies, he writes this little poem for his dad and leaves it on the coffee table for the morning. It reads like this, Freely I confess my sin, for God has poured his grace in. But when another lists my faults, I want to smash his face in. <laughs> Isn't that the way it is? That we actually, well, oh God, I, I'm a sinner. I confess my sin. But I really don't need other people confessing it for me. It's the human pride thing within us. And at that point, if it's not working, then we've got to go to the church. We've got to bring it to the church. Remember, our goal is not winning a case, but the winning of a brother. The word one in Matthew 18 and verse 15 is also used in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 through 22 when Paul refers to it as winning the lost. But you know, it's also important for us to win the saved. We must win one another with our behavior, with our attitudes, with our feelings, with our words. We mustn't grate at each other. We mustn't fight against each other. We mustn't divide from one another. We must do everything that we can within the grace of God. To bring about that place where the situation is one to the glory of God. I think that C.S. Lewis was touching on some of that in what he writes from the, 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 the whole thing behind the screw tape files and letters. He's saying, look, the devil wants you to be at loggerheads. He wants you to misunderstand each other. He wants you to hold and harbor grudges and bitterness in your hearts against one another. Because I know that the church is ineffective and can't be blessed by God when you're like that. And so we need to come and ask the church for help. Church discipline is a neglected ministry these days. And yet it's taught here in the Gospels. And it's taught also in the Epistles. And the primary reason is found there in, in verses 18 through 20. is so that we can keep the local church spiritual. When a church disciplines a member, it's actually examining itself and disciplining itself. And that's why our Lord adds these words about authority, prayer, and fellowship. But we cannot discipline others if we ourselves are not disciplined. We must be humble and we must be honest. And finally there, there must be fellowship. The local church must be a worshipping community. So the Holy Spirit of God can convict both the offender and the church. And he can even judge sin in the midst of the church. Remember in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira have been seeing the work that... Um, some of the disciples and the believers have been doing and, and being benevolent with their funds and with their houses and with their lands. They say, oh, we'll sell some property and we'll give it all to the church. And they told the church, we've given all the proceeds to you to, to bless the work of the kingdom. And Peter, prompted by the Holy Spirit, says, no, you didn't. You kept some of it back for yourself. It actually was all of yours to keep back for yourselves anyway. You didn't have to give any of it. But the lie is not that you withheld some of your money. The, 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 the problem, the sin is that you lied to the church. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit judged very dramatically in the midst of that community with the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And the whole church 
was awakened to the fact that God in the midst is concerned for holiness and for spirituality and for purity in his church. But keep in mind that humility must come before honesty and a proud Christian cannot speak the truth in love. A proud Christian will only use his brother's faults as a weapon to fight with and not as a tool to build with. And so to forgiveness. Forgiveness in Matthew 18 verses 21 through 35. When we start living in this atmosphere of humility and honesty, we must take some risks and even expect some dangers. Peter made some serious mistakes as he tried to learn this lesson. To begin with, he lacked humility in himself. He was sure that his brother would sin against him. Lord, what do I do when my brother sins against me? How often will I forgive him? Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Peter had been at that place in his discipleship where he could have gone to the Lord and say, Lord, how should my brother respond to me when I sin against him? But he wasn't there. He was that place of assuming that it was going to be somebody else's fault, not his. Peter's second mistake was in asking for limits and measures. And he goes to the Lord and he says, well, I know the rabbis teach that if you forgive somebody three times, you're a pretty spiritual person. So should I forgive someone who sins against me maybe seven times? And Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? Anybody do the math? It's 490 times. Can you imagine Peter sitting down with a little data book? Saying, boy, he sinned against me 489 times. And I've forgiven them. Next time he sins, he's out. It's just not going to happen. Who would keep a record of somebody sinning against you that many times? Somebody who does not have a forgiving spirit. Who does not have a forgiving heart. And Jesus' point is very, very clear. It's taught in the context of 1 Corinthians 13. That love, keeping no record of wrongs, won't even remember the first or the second, never mind the 400 and whatever time that someone sins against us. Jesus teaches this in a, in a, the, through the characters of this parable. The, the character, the main character, went through three stages of forgiveness, if you like. First of all, in verses 23 through 27, we discover that he was a debtor. This man had been stealing funds from the king. And when the books were audited, his crime was discovered. Now the total tax levy in Palestine about that time of, of, of history is about 800 talents per year. So you can see how dishonest this man was. In today's buying power, it would probably be the equivalent of something like six million pounds. And yet when he's found out, there's, 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 the absurdity of the man's pride is revealed when he says to the king, give me time and I will pay it back. The king knows that this man and his family and his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, won't be alive on earth and never be able to earn enough to pay back that which has been stolen. So rather than say, okay, have your best shot at paying it back, he says, I'll tell you what, I'll cancel the debt. So this debtor has his debt completely cancelled against him. There was a bit of pride there. There was a lack of sincere repentance. But then we discover that he also went out and as the, he, we discover that he was a creditor in verses 28 through 30. The servant left the presence of the king and went out and found a fellow servant who owed him the equivalence of a few pounds. And rather than extend the mercy 
that he had received from the king, he held as a man accountable for every penny. And the third thing we discover that in this process of how he should have been experiencing forgiveness is that he again became a prisoner. The king outraged that his mercy and his grace had been rejected takes the man and casts him into that place of punishment. And you know, I think Jesus is saying something very, very sternly to his church. He said, I have forgiven you. I have forgiven you of a debt. I have cancelled everything against you that you could never, ever work off. You could never, ever repay. I've cancelled it. Therefore, forgive one another. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? In some form or other, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, as we forgive the trespasses, the debts, the sins of those who have committed that crime against us. When I say the word unforgiven, whose name, whose image comes into your mind? Is it someone with whom you've had a long-going battle? A grudge, a hurt, a big disappointment, a betrayal, an abandonment. Something awful was said or done and you've never come to the place. Oh, you want God to forgive you. From the depths of your heart, you want God to forgive you. My dear friend, from the depth of God's heart, can I tell you, he wants to forgive you. He wants you to experience forgiveness completely. And because of that, he says to you, let go of whatever it is that is unforgiven towards someone else. But Rodney, you might want to argue, you don't know how bad it was. You know, I don't. But I know how bad your sin against God was. And he sent Jesus to cancel the debt. And as a result of him canceling your debt, you can. No, I believe you must. You must. Forgive from the heart. So in conclusion, I put down these four words. I beg your pardon. Would God ever revoke a pardon once granted? Is your theology going to struggle with what I'm about to say? You believe once saved, always saved? I believe that. But I also believe in the authority of Jesus' words. Listen to what he says. Jesus' story clearly says yes. If God is willing to forgive you, and you're not willing to forgive others, then listen to what the words of Jesus says. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive from your heart. Jesus says, basically, if you don't forgive, then my Father won't forgive you either. When there is a genuine response to God's gracious offer of forgiveness, there will also be a gracious responsive heart and attitude that will be willing to forgive others. Those who are forgiven much will love much. An unforgiving spirit is evidence of an unforgiven heart. Tonight, do you need to be forgiven? Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you that we know that this is the day of salvation. Help us to come and to confess our sins to you. That you might give us a new and steadfast spirit. Father, you're speaking to our hearts through your word. Help us not to neglect the hour of salvation. Help us to come and to put right in your presence that which has been an abomination and something that is wrong in your sight for days or weeks or maybe years. We come and confess our sin to you. Forgive us that we have not forgiven others. And help us tonight to release the names of these people, their deeds, their actions, the effects that it's had on our lives to you once and for all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.